The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Ecclesia, would you take a moment with me and let's pray together and give me a moment to pray for you. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that in a world where there is so much that is broken, uh, where there is injustice and inequality, where there's relational brokenness. Lord, we're grateful that we can look to you and that we know that you are good, you are kind, you are loving, you are true. And we thank you for a unique hour in the course of our week that we can set our hearts and our focus on you. We can hear from you. We can allow our hearts to find a sense of peace that we can hardly find any other place in the world. Lord, we ask that over this hour that as we pause, that you'd speak to us through your scripture. You'd remind us who we are, that we're your beloved. And then when we're reminded of these simple truths, simple truths, that we would live differently. We pray all of these things, and we pray them in your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you, Ecclesia. I, I really believe, um, truly believe that when we pause in a time like that together and we pray and we ask God to relieve our anxiety and to speak to us and calm us that he actually does. Um, I've believed over the last week as I've prayed that the Astros would win and the A's would lose. Um, and it's worked like half the time. And um, so I'm feeling really good about my prayer life. Uh, right now in this moment and I hope you're going to keep praying too because uh, October could be really fun around here and I don't know if you know Ecclesia has tickets so um, we're a unique church and that we have 64 seats because we believe uh, that God's people need to root on our team and uh, we take most of the credit for the World Series win uh, last year so we can justify it and we were there praying uh, sometimes celebrating and eating hot dogs and the like as well. Um, I do have to tell you from time to time I get up um, to share and I'm a bit overwhelmed as I look out and I realize that I'm in a different place than a lot of my pastor friends uh, and that I look out and I'm like, I like all these people, like these people are really great and uh, I don't want to betray any particular pastor friends, but a lot of them would regularly say like, I can't stand these people that I have to pastor. And uh, I don't know how I got stuck with them. And I'm constantly looking out like, how do we not have more time together? So uh, I was spontaneously inspired in worship recently that I should do a unique pastoral ministry. And so I'm gonna start doing some impromptu Pastor Chris happy hours across the city. Um, so just watch social media and all of a sudden you're gonna hear like, hey, I'm here, Pastor Chris will buy you something to eat at Ruth's Chris. We're gonna take over a little restaurant from time to time. And you should just leave work as soon as it comes through. You should just tell your boss, like, I'm feeling a little sick, like spiritually sick, and I really need time with my pastor at a happy hour. So watch for those. Uh, but it is a joy to look out and go, I like these people. Like, I actually want to spend time with them. Um, and hopefully you like me at the end of the service because I'm going to prod you a bit today and ask you to consider what I think is a really profound and challenging question. Um, so this is a question I want you to wrestle with. What, what do you think you're worth? Like where does your value come from? 
If I was going to be a really good pastor right now, I'd just let you sit with this question for a while. This is a hard one. And yet, I grew up in a home where I didn't know anything about preaching, but my dad was a pastor, and we consistently gave him the same advice week after week after week. We just reminded him, Dad, there is no such thing as a bad short sermon. Like, it doesn't exist. <laughs> right? um, so I'm going to try to be short. Or if that makes you uncomfortable or you're not sure quite how to answer it, if you think about your neighbors, maybe the people that are sitting on the row with you today, or maybe your neighbors where you live, what do you think they're worth? What do you think I'm worth? We're, um, we've been in kind of a unique uh, series. I waited 25 years. I've been pastoring for 25 years. And... Um, and I waited 25 years and I've never done a sermon series on movies that I thought were uh, important or taught important spiritual themes. Um, and I'm not sure really why I waited 25 years, but then when you finally preach uh, that series, there's kind of a canon that you feel like if you leave any films out that are really important that I've done you a disservice. Does that make sense? So it's like I hadn't been able to quite conclude the series because I'm like, well, we haven't done that film yet, right? And um, and so this week, I want to share with you, and, and the recent trend of the last few that I get to share with you, I think are especially important because they tell historical stories. And what I told you a few weeks ago is that history is really important. And in fact, often the way that we teach history, most of us don't actually learn history in that way. And one of the best ways to learn history often are to really lean into the stories of history. So great films that tell historical stories are really important. Uh, historical novels and historical fiction is really important. It's often the way that you'll actually learn history and some of the facts about history. So a few weeks ago, we did this film, uh, Amistad. Um, and then today, we're looking at a film that I think you could easily make the case um, that it is the greatest film of the 20th century, the most important film of the 20th century, a film directed by Steven Spielberg, though he didn't make a single penny on the film because he thought the story was so important that he didn't want to make money from it. Uh, a film called Schindler's List. How many of you have seen Schindler's List at some point in your journey? Great. A lot more than had seen Amistad. So, um, so three, four weeks ago, I shared with you about Amistad. A lot of you hadn't seen it. How many of you, since I preached on Amistad, uh, you went home and you watched the film Amistad? How many of you? Good. Like one on this side. This side doesn't listen to me much. Like three on this side. Like five people listen to me. I feel great about my job in the world. <laughs> really, you're welcome. Can you just imagine if those five people hadn't listened, uh, gone and watched Amistad and I got up and nobody, like nobody listened to me? I would just walk out, I'd protest and be like, I'm on strike as a pastor because you don't listen to me anyway. Preach your own dang sermon and I'm just gonna go home, watch football. Um, so really grateful for those five people that, um, that do listen. And um, the film today, if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to see it, but I would also encourage you not to just watch it haphazardly. It's not the kind of film you just go home today and decide, it's on Netflix, so I'm gonna watch it. Um, it's almost the kind of film you need to prepare yourself for, and then you need to have a day to detox a bit, to rest, to mourn, to soak in and absorb the beauty and the power of this story. And one of the things I love about it is that Spielberg took this beautiful story, but he really condensed it down, condensed it, it's like three plus hours, but um, the essence of the film uh, is this question that we're asking today. So here's just a short trailer that shares with you uh, a bit of the thesis 
of Schindler's List. Today is history. Today will be remembered. Years from now, the young will ask with wonder about this day. Today is history, and you are part of it. For six centuries, there has been a Jewish cracker. By this evening, those six centuries are a rumor. They never happened. Today is history. You want these people? These people? My people. I want my people. Who are you, Moses? It's good business. Yeah, it's good business in your opinion. I know them. I'm familiar with them. I don't I'm have to train them. It's good for you. I'll compensate you. Yeah, that's right. It's good for the army. Look, all you have to do is tell me what it's worth to you. What's a person worth to you? No, 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 no. What's one worth to you? The list is an absolute good. The list is life. So if you've seen the film, you likely remember um, that Oscar Schindler doesn't come across in the beginning of the film as a likely hero. Um, in fact, if you, as you're watching the film, you kind of hate the guy. Um, he's a Nazi who sees the war as an opportunity to make as much money as possible. So he wants to take over some factories that have been used for other purposes and make things that will be useful for the war effort, artillery, you name it. Um, and like a lot of unethical people, if you want to make a lot of money, uh, then you don't pay your labor. And he saw an opportunity to seek Jewish slave labor, and he, um, and he sought after it. Um, he was a womanizer. He drank too much, didn't seem to have ethical business practices. Overall, not somebody that the film's shaping up, and you're like, this guy's going to be like a hero or a Christ figure. And yet, um, when you read the book, it tells you that on March 13th, 1943, um, he went to one of the camps where they were mass murdering Jewish people and something flipped in him. And he decided at that moment to become an activist, to literally devote his life to rescuing as many Jewish people from death as humanly possible. And um, he devoted his business, his time, his energy, his resources to do uh, to do just that, based on this question of like, what, what is a person really worth? So before we dive into all of that, part of what I want you to contemplate is the reality that um, for most of us, um, it's easy for us to approach this question the wrong way. Uh, I think there are three big mistakes we make when we think about a person's worth. Uh, the first I was reminded of really clearly, I was writing a thank you note uh, for my friend Jamie Tchaikovsky. Da Jamie uh, founded an organization called To Write Love on Her Arms, and he preached at Elder for me over at the beginning of the summer, and I thought I should write him a letter, and I did what most of Jamie's good friends would do if you're writing him uh, a note. If you're going to write Jamie Tchaikovsky a note, you need to Google how do you spell Tchaikovsky. And so I was Googling his name, and as I Googled his name, uh, one of the first things I could see was that um, when people Google his name, they often are Googling also his net worth. They want to know 
And I thought that was unusual. He founded a nonprofit. He recently moved from Florida to California. He put everything he owns in a vehicle. So I thought, well, he, he's not worth that much, apparently. He can put it all in one vehicle. And then I started deciding, well, I'm curious, right? Like, how often do people want to know this? And so I started Googling some of your names. And you know what people want to know about you? They want to know how much you're worth. That's one of the main things they Google about you. I Googled my name. You know what people want to know about me? They want to know how much I'm worth. I actually found a website that claimed to know my net worth. And apparently, if you go to this site, it's got my photo, it's got all kinds of information about me, it'll tell you that I'm worth $900,000. I would like to know where that money is. <laughs> if somebody can find it, right? I'm a, church, I'm a church planner. I just started saving a little bit for retirement a few years ago. Like, I'm not worth $900,000. I also learned that I apparently have a second profession as a casting department, casting director. Um, <laughs> And so apparently I have a second life where I have a lot more money and I'd like to know what account it's in. If you can find it for me, I'd be really grateful. Another site claimed to know my net worth. It also gave me a reputation score of 4.0, which I consider to be like a GPA. It means it's perfect. Um, <laughs> it, it knew a lot about me, different addresses of where I've lived, my address, uh, my full name, you may not know, it's James Christopher. I go by Chris, I always have. Um, I'm a director here at Ecclesia. Uh, it also tells you I'm African-American. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I didn't even know I was African-American until I looked it up. I was gonna take the 23andMe and now I don't have to. I'm African-American. Um, you can learn all kinds of things. You gotta you got hear this, Ecclesia. Whether you look yourself up or whether you look up what you're worth or somehow you define what you're worth based on what you own, based on your money or lack of money, if you think it's got anything to do with your worth, you're missing it entirely. God defines your worth. And when God looks at you, I'm telling you, he doesn't see your money or lack of money. He doesn't even notice. Everybody else may notice, or you may think they do. God doesn't even see it. Doesn't compute. It's not the smallest piece of rice in his equation of what you're worth. Doesn't even show up then there are a lot of people that make the mistake of trying to view what people are worth based on what you're worth to them. We call it nice things, right? We, really, we, we couch it, it's networking, right? Anybody been to one of those events that's just networking? It's fun to be a pastor in those moments, right? Because you show up and it's like, there are a lot of people that just don't have any use for me whatsoever, right? You can get your, what do you do? I'm a pastor, they don't even respond, they just move to the next person, right? And you go like, you're here to decide who's worth something to you. I get it, it's the world we live in, but I gotta tell you, people aren't worth what they're worth to you and you're not worth what you're worth to people. Your worth comes from God, it has nothing to do with it. Or in our culture, sometimes people are worth something because they're famous. Or even worse, in our day, in a social media culture, being infamous can be better than being famous doesn't even compute, has nothing to do with it. So who says what we're worth? I'd contend to you the one that made you ought to be the one that tells you what you're worth. And this is what God says in Genesis, it tells us when God created all things that he did just that and he created humanity in his image. 
created them male and female. He looked at men and women and said, you know what, I'm, you're a reflection of me. God looks at us and says, you're a reflection of the one who created everything. And I gotta tell you, if you're a reflection of the God, the creator God, the one who made all things, you're pretty valuable. He looks at you and says, I see my own reflection in you. In Psalm 139, the psalmist puts it this way. The psalmist says, for you shaped me inside and out. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Long before I took my first breath, I will offer you my grateful heart, for I am your unique creation. You hear that as we pray for Davy Rose? Like there's no other baby, there's no other person like that beautiful little baby. None like you. You have approached even the smallest details, the psalmist says, with excellence. Your works are wonderful. I carry this knowledge deep within my soul. Part of what I believe makes the psalmist unique and his uh, propensity towards worship is this deep sense that God made me, God knows me, God loves me. I'm invaluable because God made me. The scriptures say it over and over and over again. Galatians 3 tells us, you know who you are? You're God's child. You're a child of the living God. John 15 tells us that when Jesus looks at us, he calls us his friend. Not just the one I made, not my subject, but my friend. 2 Corinthians tells us that when you come to faith, you become a whole new person. God's spirit begins to live in you. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us. In Ephesians 2, it tells us that you are God's incredible work of art. You're like his masterpiece. In 1 John, it tells us that you are totally and completely, and I am totally and completely forgiven. In Ephesians 4, it tells us that we're created in God's own likeness, his own image, same as it tells us in Genesis. In Ephesians 2, it tells us that we're spiritually alive. In Philippians 3, it tells us that we're a citizen of heaven. That's where we belong. In Acts 1, it tells us we're God's messenger to the world. In Matthew 28, it tells us that we are God's disciple makers. We're the people that introduce other people to the living God. In Matthew 5, it tells us that we're the salt of the earth. In Matthew 5, it tells us that we're the light of the world. In Romans 5, it tells us that each of us are greatly and dearly loved. Do you hear it, Ecclesia? You're invaluable. This is who God says you are. So you may show up at a networking event and nobody seems to care, but I gotta tell you, God's told a different story. And then when God looks upon you, he says, you are my trusted, my beautiful work. So the context of this film, as they struggle with this question of what a human life is worth, um, Oscar Schindler reaches a unique point in the story. He is given his best, the war is over, and because he's a Nazi, he's now the one on the run. And as he departs this small diaspora, this Jewish community that he's created, um, the interaction that he has with these brothers and sisters, I think, uh, I think it may be the most uh, significant and moving scene uh, in all of cinema.
part of me that just wanted to have no sermon today. I was just going to show you that clip and serve you communion and let you wrestle with it as I wrestle with it. Some of you are probably like me. I've seen a lot of films. I love film. I, I can't remember when or where I saw most films, but I remember the theater I was in. I remember the row I was in. I remember the seat I was in when I saw Schindler's List. Anybody else like me, you can see it. You can visualize it. And I think when I saw that film in the, in the 90s, right, I lived in a different world than the world I live in today. In the 90s, I felt like I was just mainly a Houstonian or a Texan. This was kind of my world. We didn't live with this awareness that we were a part of a big global story. We thought we were really just responsible for our family and some people around here. Anybody else remember what that felt like? It just felt different. And now we live in this really global world, and the reality is we're really fully aware of what happens all across the globe. This week, I, I found out about uh, one of the churches that we're going to be working with, as we have been working with for a long time, and we're going to be working with them as they serve Venezuelan refugees. And one of the refugees from Venezuela had moved there to Argentina and literally has just been trying to get a life established. And his three-year-old got sick and just the most basic medicine, basic medicine that his kid needed, and they couldn't get it in Venezuela. And he lost his three-year-old because they couldn't get the most basic of medicines. And we live in this world. Not a lot of us are ready to fly into Venezuela, but some of us are going to need to. We're going to need to go places because we live in a global world where our generosity or lack of generosity actually makes a difference. When I heard this film, watched this film for the first time, I thought that was a historical problem. I thought, man, it would suck to live in that day where you had to make that choice. And I didn't realize that by 2018, we would be living in much the same world. 
that there are communities that I go to on a regular basis when I travel with the work that we get to do as a church with Living Water. I go into communities that we don't yet know if we're going to drill water wells there, and it's the most awkward. It's the sense while you're there of like, if our budget grows, we will likely drill those water wells. And if our budget contracts, we will definitely not be drilling those water wells. And it points out our generosity or lack of generosity in a way that's painful. The kids that I was with this summer in Zambia. For those kids, the difference between getting sponsored and not getting sponsored, is, it's the difference between life and death. It's just two different paths when you get to go to school and you have an opportunity. I've got a couple of those kids, one that I got to spend time with a mentor that still needs a sponsor. My wife Lisa's over in the corner. If you want to grab her, she'll help set you up to go. I, I need some people who will sponsor them. It literally makes a world of difference. So given that reality, if you're invaluable, I'm invaluable, our neighbors and our friends across the globe are invaluable, what are we supposed to do? Three things I want to share with you, and then we'll share communion because I promised you a short sermon, and I'm at risk of not delivering my promise. First one, um, have you ever watched one of those shows where they take somebody and they've been living in like a trailer and they build them a new house, like a crazy new house, like massive new house with two pools connected by a water slide and you're just watching and you're looking like, dude, they were just living in a trailer and like I had a little pool the size of a, size of a baptismal and I could hardly keep it from turning green. Like it was just nonstop work. And you're like, you're gonna go from a trailer and now you gotta take care of that house and the water slide and the two pools and you're just looking at it going, this may not turn out that good. Like you've been given something so valuable. Like that's a, that's a blessing and it's a curse, right? We've been giving out these cars post-Harvey and it's been a blast, right? Brand new cars. We're giving, here's the key to your new Pathfinder, right? To families and it's life-changing. And then there's a part of me at the end that is just like, hey, make sure you change the oil. Please change the oil. Like this is a great car. And when you've been given something valuable, you've got to take care of it, right? We agree? Given something valuable, you've got to take care of it. So hear this. You're invaluable, your value is immeasurable. One of the main things you've got to do is take care of yourself. Self-care is so important. You've been entrusted to be the person that God made you to be, and if you don't care well for yourself, if you beat this body and spirit up that God's given you, you won't fulfill the purposes that he has for you. And some of the things are just so simple. He made you. God made you to work six days. Now, this is the thing, like our kids, we got to remind them, like, not to work two days, not to work no days, not to work three days, work six days. Not to work seven days, work six days. Rest and worship a seventh day. That's how God made your body to function. And if you don't do that, if you work seven days, you won't last, and you won't be the you you're supposed to be. God made you to rest and to worship. So the first take care of yourself. If your value is immeasurable, you got to take care of yourself. Second, if we live in a world where our generosity matters, this is what I want to say to each and every one of you. Work hard and be really generous. Work hard and be really generous. There is no greater joy in life than being radically generous. I'm just telling you, there's no pleasure you can find. There's no food that you can eat that brings more joy than working hard and being really generous. It's a beautiful, beautiful life. And then thirdly, I'm gonna let um, this short clip 
set up the third one. Um, this is a clip from uh, one of my favorite shows. It was produced by uh, Sundance. And Sundance created this show called Iconoclast, and this is what they did. They would pull two unique people together and ask them to spend a day together, and their interactions just become brilliant. In this particular episode, they asked uh, Dr. Maya Angelou uh, to spend a day with comedian Dave Chappelle. Um, <laughs> and I'm telling you, the interactions are just beautiful. I watch this episode at least once a year, but this is my favorite story in this episode. Let me tell you why. Let me say this. Let me say that. John Singleton was doing his movie, Poetic Justice, and he asked, would I come out to Los Angeles and do a cameo. I walked out of my trailer that morning, and there was one young man cursing like you could see the blue come out of his mouth. Ooh. And then he and another fellow, they were at each other's throats. They had each other's clothes. So I went up to one young man, and I said, excuse me, May I speak to you? He said, I wouldn't give I said, I understand that. But may I speak to you for a minute? He said, if these moves, I said, no. I, I've heard that before. But do you know how important you are? Do you know that our people slept, lay spoon fashion in the filthy hatches of slave ships, in their own and in each other's excrement and urine and menstrual flow so that you can live? 200 years later. Do you know that? Do you know that our people stood on auction blocks so that you could live? He said, I said, no, but I just wonder, when's the last time anyone told you how important you are? And he started to, to the tears started to come out. I had no Kleenex or anything, so I just wiped his face with my hands and talked to him. And Miss Janet Jackson came. She said, Angelo, I don't believe you actually talked to Tupac Shakur. So I didn't know Tupac Shakur. I didn't know Six Pack. <laughs> I had never heard the name. Because in, in my life, and my age group, you understand? It just didn't, I didn't know that. Tupac's mother wrote me a letter. She said her son had called her right after I had spoken to him. And she wanted to thank me. She said, you may have saved his life. And I thank you, Dr. Angela. In that one story, she painted a more human picture of him than the entire media did during his career, you know. People were afraid of Tupac. The media made him like he was a scary thing. And she talked about him like he was a young man in a confusing and difficult situation. And that's kind of what I like about Dr. Angelo. So the third call, Ecclesia, is to say, what would it look like if you were to um, stop when you felt led and look some people in the eye and tell them how beloved, how important they are? There are people all around you that the world, they may be trying to project something to the world that they've got it together and they've got it figured out but inside they're longing for somebody to tell them they're beloved, that they're important, that they're immeasurably valuable. A few weeks ago, I got word that a pastor that I know um, 
young, gifted pastor, um, was struggling with depression and, uh, and took his own life not long ago. And I just reached out to pastors in general and said, hey, if you're a pastor, this job, sometimes it's not great and it's hard. And if you want to talk to somebody, if you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, then I'd love for you to reach out to. I can't tell you how long, how much I've been on the phone over the last weeks. Talking to peace, people that they're trying to project like they've got it together. And in fact, they've got to have it together because they feel like I have to have it together so that you have it together. And they're longing for people to say, hey, you're, you're so important. You are so valuable. So I have this deep-seated belief that, um, that when we gather in a place like this, that if you pray a prayer that God would bring somebody in front of you that needs to hear how beloved and important they are, that that would actually happen. I really believe it. That if you said this week, God, I'm going to look for somebody and you're going to bring somebody to me. That's what I'm praying, that you would do that. Um, I believe they actually would. And that if you'd commit to say, God, when that opportunity presents itself, I'm going to tell them how beautiful and important and valuable they are. My list's a little different than Dr. Angelou's, but to be able to say that God loved you so much that he came into this world, that he loves you immeasurably. You're so valuable that he died for you, that he made you unique, that your gifts are so significant. You're so important. So as we come to communion, we're going to enter into the story of a God who became human and he gathered with these broken humans and before he departed he shared a meal with them and he did just that. He broke the bread and he was saying to the disciples, even the guy who was betraying him, let me tell you how important you are, that you're so important that this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. So if you're in a place that you say, you know what, Pastor, I agree, I'd like to pray that prayer that God would give me someone to speak that to as we bless the communion elements. If you're willing to pray that prayer that God would give you someone to speak those words over this week, would you just stand with me as we pray over these elements? Lord God, I thank you for this bread. I believe that this bread is a physical reminder that you looked at these disciples whom you called beloved, whom you called friends, and you had to tell them over and over, you're so important, you are so beloved. And Lord, we thank you today that we send out literally just a squadron of Ecclesians into Houston and across the globe that are ready to look children and men and women, young and old in the eyes and remind them, you are so important, you are so beloved. And Lord, we pray that that generosity of spirit, Lord, we pray we'd be generous in what we've been given as well, but the, the generosity of spirit that you would give us to speak words of love and kindness over our brothers and sisters, our sons and daughters, would break the hearts, literally, of those that are struggling and hurting. Lord God, we thank you for this cup, for this wine and juice that says to each and every one of us that in your love, you've chosen to forgive us even when we failed. And we thank you for that beautiful love. We pray all of this together and we pray it in your name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.